invite you to turn with me and your copies of God's Word to 2 Kings chapter 6. If you are visiting with us today, we are working our way through 2 Kings in a section could easily be called the Gospel according to Elisha. <clears throat> and if you were here last week, I'm so glad you came back. Um, I was, I had my questions. Uh, but Second Kings, we're going to pick up with the story from last week, but we're going to continue to the end. So we start at Second Kings 6, verse 24, and we will read through to the end of chapter 7. 6.24 through the end of chapter 7. Once again, this really is God's Word. It's a moment where you might say, buckle up, but listen. <clears throat> Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If Yahweh will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will boil my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. 
And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses tied, and the donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took Two horsemen. And the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Yahweh. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. 
And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. We have an idiom in English where we say, you had better believe it. And all we usually mean by that phrase is what I have just said to you is, without question, absolutely true. It might not be of much consequence to you in the big picture of life, but it's true. It might even be, what I've just said, might even be contrary to your expectation or your belief, but you can be absolutely sure what I've just said to you is true. You better believe it. I can give you an example, and it's a, an innocuous, and it's not a life-changing example at all. And some of you will just have to play along with me for a moment. I might say to you, did the Philadelphia Flyers lose another game last night? <laughs> Giving up a tying goal with one second left in regulation and then the winning goal less than 30 seconds into overtime. You better believe it. <laughs> now that little statement of fact is not altogether consequential or life-changing. In fact, it's not even contrary to your expectations, probably. <laughs> but we say, you better believe it, and all we mean to say is it's absolutely true. But I don't know if you've noticed, there's something nearly obscured in the phrase, something we rarely intend to say when we use that phrase, but it's something I want to bring to the fore for you this morning. You see, when we say, you better believe it, we could be saying, there is great benefit to you in believing what I just said. You will be better off if you believe it. Or there's even an implied threat to you in this. That is, if you do not believe it, there will be negative consequences for you. And our text this morning can be summed up with this. The Lord who speaks by his word always does what he says he will do. Or you could put it this way. God's word always comes true both with respect to his promises of salvation and with respect to his threats of judgment. And you better believe it. Your future depends on whether you believe what I just said. Well, back to Samaria, how bad was it? The capital city is locked down. It's surrounded by an enemy army. Food is scarce. Grocery prices are through the roof. You think you have something to complain about. People here are actually literally dying of hunger. If you could afford it, you could buy an unclean donkey's head or a cup of dove's droppings for a small fortune. If you didn't have the money, it's even worse. You might be tempted to eat your own child. 
The king who is supposed to defend and protect and provide for and to execute justice, the king is powerless. He cannot fend off the army that is circled around the city. He can't even chase them away. He can't provide food or wine to his people. And when he is confronted with a judicial case, he proves to be altogether unlike Solomon. Solomon, who knew what to do when there were two competing mothers with two competing claims, but only one live baby between them, when those stood before him. This king throws up his hands. He tears his clothes. He reveals he's in mourning. He is utterly powerless. And then, rather than leading the people in national repentance, rather than leading them in sorrow for their sin and forsaking their God, he loses his mind in a fit of rage, altogether misdirected, And he goes after the man of God who gave the word of God for the people of God that they might have life from God. And he wants to find Elisha and cut off his head. Elisha, no doubt from the Lord, hears about the plan, protects himself, bars the door, and has a conversation with the messenger, and it seems the king himself, through the door. And he promises and he predicts again the word of the Lord, salvation and deliverance will come within the next 24 hours. And it is such a preposterous promise, it seems way too good to be true to both the king and at least to the king's right-hand man, the captain. And so to him, Elisha says something we could say to anyone who is hostile to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're ever in a conversation with someone who says, that's fine if you believe that, but it can't possibly be true, or at least it's not true for me. Let me paraphrase what Elisha says. Your failure to believe God's word does not negate or falsify God's word. Rather, it will deprive you of the blessings and the benefits of God's word when it comes true. Just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's, going to happen. it's not going to happen. It doesn't make it any less true or make it any more likely not to happen. All you're doing is setting yourself up to be denied the benefits of God when His Word comes true. And here's where we pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 3. And I hope you caught this. It's such a well-told story. It's so carefully crafted. It comes to us in three scenes. Almost all of the important action takes place at the gates of the city, the place where you would expect 
obviously, entrance and exit, where you might expect to find guards who are at least giving some kind of advance notice if Assyrians actually do try to come in. But it's also the place in the Old Testament where people gather. It's also the place in the Old Testament where justice so often is dispensed. And in the first scene of verses 3 through 10, we come across four what I call rather unlikely evangelists. Out of nowhere, really, and rather abruptly, we are introduced to four lepers. Notice where they are sitting. They're on the outside of the city at the gate. And that makes sense because they're unclean. They are the outcasts. They are the unnamed rejects of this story. But as often happens with rejects of society, they found themselves. They found each other. And they have this profound discussion among themselves. Life is grim. But they sit around and do a cost-benefit analysis. Why are we just sitting around here just waiting to die? But where shall we go and what shall we do? Let's see what are the options. One of them says, well, if we enter the city, there's famine going on. We're going to die. Another says, if we sit here, we die. Another says, well, if we go over to the Syrians, perhaps they may just save our lives or spare us, and we will live. Or, on the other hand, Eeyore says, they might kill us, in which case we will die. But it's a conversation so frank and so honest, their options are so few, and their chances are so slim. You might say they've got a 25% chance of living. They're rather desperate. All in favor of going over to the Syrians, say aye. And away they go. Notice darkness is falling, and it turns out, unbeknownst to them, as they are approaching the camp, the Syrians are fleeing the camp. There's a stampede out of the Syrian camp, and the lepers don't know this is happening, and they don't know why. Only we are told with this editorial comment what's really going on. We get the divine perspective of what's happening as the lepers come and discover the camp is empty. We are conveniently told about a great, mighty, mysterious work of the Lord. He has come down to fight for his people, and verses 6 and 7 really are at the heart of this part of the story, because you'll notice the lepers leave and go to the camp, and then they're going to come back and come back to the city. And right in the middle of all that, we're told this. I actually think it's okay to put it this way. Yahweh tricked the Syrians. He has manufactured out of nothing 
the thundering sounds of horses and chariots and a great army. And those sounds make the Syrians wake up in the middle of the night in their tents, and they think the Israelites have somehow managed to get word out over the siege to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians and have somehow mustered an alliance, and these kings are coming, and they're going to be trapped, the Syrians that are going to be trapped between this army and whatever's left of the Israelite army in the city of Samaria. And so great is their panic, they drop everything and turn tail and head their way back to Syria. And it's like the picture you might imagine or have seen about a supposed rapture. They are gone and they've left everything behind. And the lepers left behind help themselves to everything that's been left behind. And they do what victorious armies do. They eat, they drink, they plunder, they stock away things for future use. I think we're intended here to remember Gehazi, Elisha's servant, who had become a leper because he took and hid clothing and silver. What he had taken from Naaman, who had been a leper, who had been healed by Yahweh at the Jordan River, the Syrians now appear to have crossed. Naaman had come bearing gold and silver and articles of clothing. And I don't think it's an accident that as a Syrian army flees here, these are the very things we're told the lepers start stashing away. But finally, in verse 9 they start having second thoughts. They've eaten. They're well drunk. They have found clothes. They have stashed it. They've come back to this tent. They go to another tent. They keep eating and they keep drinking and they keep finding stuff. And then they say this. What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. Come, let's go and tell the king's household. You see, where the king's captain had decided that the good news was too good to be believed, these four lepers believe the good news is too good not to be shared. It's too good to keep to themselves. So they retrace their steps to the city gate. They tell their story to the watchman on the wall, and the message spreads. In fact, you could say these unlikely evangelists preached such a good sermon, it resulted in a stampede. There's a quote that is so good, it gets attributed to a lot of people. But someone once said, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. These four lepers become four evangelists of this good news they believe is too good to keep to themselves. 
Well, the scene shifts. We're now uh, back to the palace or the king and his palace. And in the middle of the night, uh, this news is starting to spread and the palace is starting to stir. I'd like to imagine the king, because of his response, is a little perturbed by having been uh, awoken in the middle of his sleep. But he comes and he says, uh, this is another trick. And it's a plausible uh, answer or reply from the king who's still probably groggy a little, and he thinks the Syrians have only pulled back uh, to draw the Israelites out of the city, and once they have left the city, they can easily capture them and take the city, and the war is over. They're just getting tired of waiting with this siege. This is a trick. Again, it's a plausible explanation. After all, the Syrians have been there for so long, we're not told how long, but they've been there so long that people are dying of hunger. So desperate that they're willing to eat their own children. What else would possibly make the Syrians pick up and leave in the middle of the night when they were so close to success by just waiting? But thank God for one of the king's servants. He's even wiser. He has the good sense to come up with a plan. And to his credit, the king has the good sense to listen to the plan. And notice the conversation is not all that different from the one the lepers had had at the beginning of the story. We can sit here and do nothing and we'll die. Like all the rest of the Israelites who have perished. Let's at least Take a look. What do we have to lose? Well, they take two horses that had not already been turned into sausages, and they send to follow the Syrian army, and they go all the way to the Jordan River. That could be as many as 10 or 15 miles away. We couldn't possibly know exactly, but it's a, it's a good hike. And they come back and report that the entire road to the river looks like a combination of a yard sale in your teenager's bedroom. There's just stuff everywhere. So they come back and they tell the king, yes, the good news is true. And the good news travels quickly, and the sermon of the lepers causes this stampede. Verse 16, people stream out of the city to plunder the camp of the Syrians. These are some of the great and precious promises of God to his people. If you're faithful to my covenant, you will rout them. You will, they will come at you one way, and they will scatter in many ways. You will be able to plunder them, receive things for which you have not worked, stuff you've not earned, but it'll become yours. And not to be lost in any of this, in fact, at the very heart of this message, at the very heart of the story, the word of the Lord proves to be true. Specifically, his promise spoken by Elisha that not only would there be salvation, but a promise so specific it came down to the price of flour. And then there's a third scene. The final scene begins in verse 17. Remember the king's captain. 
he somehow has earned the king's trust so much so that he's in charge of crowd control. He's to organize, probably slow the crush of humanity all funneling out of the one gate of the city. But he's, forgive this expression, like a too slow retiree at the department store on a Black Friday sale. He gets all together run over. The good news caused a stampede and he's crushed by the crowd and he's trampled to death. And in case you missed it, that story gets told twice. There's this little flashback scene. Because after all, when the king came to Elisha and Elisha told the story, the, king, the captain said, no, nah, I doubt it. And Elisha said, well, here's what's going to happen to you. And lo and behold, it happens. Elisha had told the king, salvation is coming in 24 hours or less. And the captain said, well, that seems highly unlikely. I don't think Yahweh can create windows in heaven as if he had not done that for 40 years in the wilderness. And so the man of God pronounces judgment on him to say, just because you don't believe Yahweh does not mean Yahweh's word isn't going to come true or that it isn't true. It just means you will not benefit. You'll see this happen. You will see God's salvation and his deliverance and his abundance, but you will not eat. So verse 20, what happened to him, the people trampled him in the gate and he died as the word of the Lord or as the man of God had said. Last week I told you that this whole story, at least the first half of the story, is really just a fulfillment of God's promises of his judgment, of his curses for covenant disobedience. Deuteronomy. Everything from the siege to the oppression to the crippling hunger so bad it let mothers eat their own children. All of that predicted by God through Moses in Deuteronomy. And including the powerless king who's so inept and who's unable to do anything about foreign oppression or poverty or hunger, hunger or infanticide or injustice. All of this, all of these things were signs of God's judgment on his people for failing to hear and to follow his word. So it shouldn't surprise you that the hero of this story is Yahweh himself, who speaks and acts through his word, who is going to deliver his people in a great and mighty way from the trickery of the Syrians to the deliverance through the message of the lepers. And yet even in the course of 2 Kings, this little episode is really just a small mild reprieve. It's evidence of God's grace to be sure. But it's grace given to a people bent on their own destruction and their dispersion. And it's intended, of course, to capture the minds and hearts of the people to the south in Judah. They're to say, what kind of a God do we serve? One who would judge who would send curses for covenant disobedience, but who will send blessings for obedience.
God means what he says. And he does what he says he will do. And God's word is to be believed, both with respect to its promises of salvation and of its threats for judgment. And if you can't find and believe the gospel in this story, let me at least tell you that we know so much more. And believe at least with me the four evangelists of the New Testament who describe the birth and the life and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the one who says, I am the true bread from heaven. I am the only gate through which you must enter, but I'm also the one who is cursed, who is crucified outside of the gates, who's condemned by the laws of his people, sentenced to die at the hands of a foreign power, but who in his death and in his resurrection defies and disperses the enemy and accomplishes all those great reversals just hinted at in this story, long promised, here pictured, bringing about freedom from oppression, transforming famine into feasting, turning death into life. He fills the hungry with good things. So on this day, like every other Sunday, you gather to remember, to celebrate, to live out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a day of good news. And since we have embraced this good news and have found the bread of life, we should know there are people who are dying and who depend, will depend on you or someone else telling them where to find bread. And for all of us, the word of the Lord always comes true, both with respect to its promises of salvation and with its threats of judgment. We can be like the lepers who spread the good news, who simply say, I found bread, it's over here. Or you can be like the crowd rushing to get it because you're starving. But don't forget the guy who doesn't make it. Because to believe in Jesus Christ is to have everlasting life. There are consequences to your believing in him. That is, your life will be internally enriched. But there are consequences in rejecting him, resulting in your eternal, everlasting death. The word of God always comes true, both with respect to its promises of salvation and its threats of judgment. God is not a liar. He always keeps his word. And you, my friends, had better believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. It uh, begins so darkly, but it ends with a split decision. Your people are fed, but that unbelieving man is trampled to death.
Thank you, Lord, for your Son and our Savior who gave his life that we might live. Let this story find its root in our hearts and let it produce in us good fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.